Now, Christmas is over. It's done for. It's gone. And uh, a lot of people are talking about taking down their lights now while the, the, you know, the days, the weather is good. New Year's is on its way. And we've been concerned about holidays and what that means about the pandemic. New Year's, we really need to be careful. Uh, at least with the others, there's some measure of, there's something redeemable. Thanksgiving calls us to be thankful Christmas puts us in mind of uh, the story of the birth of Christ. It represents many good things. Why is it that we do Thanksgiving and Christmas, these two redeemable holidays, and then we go straight to New Year's Eve, which is all about being irresponsible? Uh, you know, back in the day, they used to have the fancy uh, you know, ballroom dancing and all that. You know what that is, kids? That's just 20th century uh, partying is what that is. That's all, that's all it is. And then we end up having such a bad time on New Year's Eve that the next year is nothing but a hangover. Now think about that. And I want you to be careful because uh, there's, there's not a lot that's redeemable in that. We're looking for a joy that is not limited to the moment of the party. We're looking for a joy that is not restricted to just good times. We're looking for a joy that transcends seasons and is something rather enduring. And one of the ways we're going to find that is to realize the unlimited benefit of spiritual maturity. And when you hear, when you hear talk of joy in church, at some point your mind is going to wander over to Galatians 5 and talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Because joy makes it on that list of nine fruit of the Spirit. I want to take us there this morning. So if you would join me, please, in Galatians 5. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. You'll see this on the screen. Galatians 5, 19 through 26. Paul's writing a very direct and very uh, real message to his congregation in Galatia. He says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, there's no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. This is Paul's message to the Galatians that they need to pick a direction They either need to let the works of the sinful nature have its way in their life, or they need to be yielding the fruit of the Spirit. But I think a good question for us to ask right here is, 
Why is it fruit of the Spirit? Why fruit? Two ways of living, two ways of ordering one's life. You know, I think the, the other just gets called the work of the flesh or the results of the sinful nature. But that, <clears throat> that's not very, it's not very interesting. But fruit, oh, with fruit we get a pleasant image. I mean, look at that. It gives itself to so many wonderful backgrounds on your PowerPoint. Fruit, a basket of raspberries, why not? You know, I think that God gave Paul the inspiration to call it the fruit of the Spirit, knowing that we would need this for our uh, garden and farm theme VBSs, and so that we could have uh, Farmer McBible's fruit of the Spirit, and <clears throat> so that we could teach lessons. I remember teaching sermons where I had a new fruit with every uh, lesson on one of these nine virtues. And boy, did I get the tomatoes that year. I mean, people, and I mean good way, not they weren't throwing tomatoes at me. People were bringing me tomatoes because I confessed that I liked them. And, you know, and so every fruit becomes another, you know, joy is an, is an apple or it's a cherry or whatever. And uh, so it, it becomes sort of this biblical spiritual Pac-Man game where you keep going up different levels. Why fruit? I mean, really. Is it just because it's a cute image or is there a significant to it? You know, speaking of fruit, I can remember when there used to only be like a few fruit. Anybody else, you know? And then now you've got fruits that, you know, achai berries, that's not a fruit, come on. I mean, you know, and kiwi, I think somebody invented that in a lab. I mean, those aren't, we're always coming up with some new fruit, something else, and it's a new flavor, you know. And, and I think for us, we look at fruit in that way, as if it's a commodity, it's something to buy. Hey, you can go down to the market now and you can get this kind of fruit that used to only be available over here. This fruit that's out of season, you can get it now. You can get those little oranges that are easy to peel. Or you can get these fruit or you can get this fruit. And everybody gets the fruit they want. We get to pick and choose. That is a commodity culture view of fruit. And sometimes that can fool with our understanding of what's going on here. So even though at home you may be asking each other right now, what's your favorite fruit? And maybe you can draw some pictures of your favorite fruit. And maybe you can do that here too. I think that Paul here is not just talking about the things you buy in a supermarket. He's talking about the result of a process. He's talking about the harvest that you get. If you live in a true agri-culture, then fruit is what you get from your work, from your, from your garden, from the process. Fruit is the blessing of helping plants grow. Fruit is what you wait for. So follow me on this because I want to teach you how to understand Scripture and how to do this on your own as well. He calls it the fruit of the Spirit. And first of all, fruit is not an activity like the works of the sinful nature. Fruit is a thing. It's a noun. It's a thing, a fruit. A fruit is a result. It's something. Fruit is not, not originally, a buy and sell commodity where you go down to the fruit market or the produce section. Fruit is what you get so that you can eat. And it's what you get from working the soil, tending the soil. Fruit is a product. It's the end of a process. It's produce. It's why we still call it produce. It's why we call it yield. 
It's what the, the ground and the soil and the, the, the plants give up to us. So if you th- compare that to the works of the flesh then, the works of the flesh or the works of the sinful nature, they are effort. And if you stop and think about that list of things that we read, the desires of the sinful nature, you know, we ever really think about how much effort goes into that? Think about the effort that's being planned right now for New Year's Eve festivities. Even in the midst of a pandemic, there will still be effort planned towards that, and it will all be about one thing, exuberance. It'll all be about one thing, indulgence. And that's being planned. Oh, you can say it's the bottom dollar and it's the economy. Yeah, it's an economy based on indulgence. So all of that is being poured into something, and the result doesn't matter. It means that with all of those works of the sinful nature, no matter how hard we work, it is going to be work, it's going to be effort, whether it works, whether it doesn't work, whether it succeeds, whether it fails, but a fruit is different. So then, here's what I want you to pay attention to. Now I want you to pay attention to me. So then... A fruit is a product. And if joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit, then joy is a product of the Spirit. Joy isn't the work in and of itself. It's the Spirit that does the work. Joy is the product of that Spirit at work in God's people. But what produces What process produces joy? What is the process that takes us from a beginning to the harvest of things like joy? Because we'd like to know that. Because if we knew that, we'd like to put our energy and our efforts into that. Well, again, let's compare it to the agricultural image that's being used here. First of all, let me get you thinking a little bit, okay? And you at home can be thinking about this too. And this might be where uh, folks, families need to talk at home. Who is looking forward to putting out a garden in the spring? Hmm? Who wants to put out a garden? Now you go ahead and you can raise your hands here if you want to. I mean, that sounds pretty good. You get past this winter, you get past all this, going to set out a garden. I know some of you are, and I hope you plant some of those tomatoes for me, okay? Because I hope you have a good produce. I hope you're thinking about it. I can tell you, as far as uh, uh, putting out a garden in the spring, not me. No, I've given that up. I've tried it for a couple of years now. I've handed that all off to my family. Uh, Karen and Ethan and the rest of them, they can take care of that. I've built the boxes. I've put it out there. They can handle it. I have decided that I am not a gardener. I am a garage dweller. Okay? I have uh, handed that over because... Tending to a garden requires time. It requires patience. It's a process. You have to put the plants in the ground. You have to take the seed. You have to nurture it. You have to cultivate it. You have to let it grow. You have to keep bugs off of it. It is a long process. And as far as engaging in that process, I can tell you, not me. Not me. If I can't fix a thing in a few days... If I can't use a certain amount of power tools, fire, or duct tape to make something better, I'm not interested. Not me. Not me. I'm done. I am much more comfortable in the garage. I am satisfied to order spare parts, to polish, to rebuild, and this is the way of the garage 
So, not the garden. But God didn't put us in a garage. God made the world according to a garden process. You know, one of the ways to tell if your garden material or if your garage material is this image that I have on the screen. If you look at that and you say, oh, that's cute, that's a nice idea, you're, you're for the garden. If you look at that and you say, that is a waste of a truck, why on earth would they do that? You need to join me in the garage. If you have no opinion, then you need to go deer hunting or something. Um, the garden is how God made the world, okay? Now, I'm not leaving my garage, don't, don't, not for a second. But the garden is how God made the world because that is a process that he made us for, to tend the garden. God made us to tend the garden. When you go back to the story of creation, when you go back to the story of Genesis, God makes a garden. He makes, the garden is, is the world. And God makes caretakers for that garden. The man and the woman, Adam and Eve, us. We have a place and a purpose in that. And it works well until the sinful works of the flesh get in the way. Now, even though I'm not going to take the time to deal with an outdoor physical garden, you know, other than I'll till the soil and do whatever requires uh, you know, machinery and, and building boxes, but, but other than that, it's because I have another garden that I'm working on. Myself is my garden. I have to cultivate my heart and my mind so that the Spirit of God can produce in me the fruit of the Spirit. I have to tend that garden. And it takes me a lot of time. Now, some of you are able to tend the garden of self by doing those gardens in your backyard. And God bless you for that. For me, it happens through the garage. But that's the garden that God is asking us to tend to. How do we then cultivate the fruit of the Spirit that includes joy? How can we practice the yielding that leads to the yield of the Spirit? Well, first of all, the clue is in those words, we are cultivating something. We're not creating it. I cannot become more joyous by simply willing myself to be joyous. Willing myself into things is usually what gets me into trouble in the first place. It's what created this, it's, it's part of the sin that created the corruption that is in this good world now. Here comes the serpent, here comes the ancient enemy, starts telling Eve, starts telling Adam, starts convincing them that if they just think hard enough and work hard enough and can see things like God, then they can be just like God. And sometimes we have this idea that we can do the same thing. When instead, what we really need to do is surrender our will to Him. Now that doesn't sound, you know, we, we amen that in here, but that doesn't sound very American. And that doesn't sound very popular. Surrender my will? I'm not supposed to surrender my will. Well, it depends on who you're surrendering your will to. If you're surrendering your will to your Creator, then He is going to produce the fruit of the Spirit within you. And that yielding might be a good thing. We'll get to that in a second when we look at uh, how this is described. By the way, to do so, to yield and to accept, is the beginning of spiritual maturity. 
Some of you are teachers. Some of you are instructors. I, I, you know, I, uh, I told my son that best golf instructor I ever had was my dentist. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was back in Texas when I was in grad school, and I thought, uh, I, by the way, gardening has ended up in the same garbage heap as golfing for me. Uh, I found out I wasn't really good at that either. And, but he, he taught me. The first question he asked me is he said, has anybody else ever taught you to play golf? I was confident, and I said, no. He said, good. He said, because it takes much more effort for me to unlearn somebody than to learn them how to play golf. When we are unteachable, when we are uncoachable, we cannot yield to what somebody is trying to instruct us to do. You know that as instructors. You know that as learners. How are we going to engage in the process that develops the fruit of the Spirit if we will not yield to God. Yielding to God is actually the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of growth. It's the beginning of maturity. And that's the key to cultivating joy. The spiritual maturity. Notice that in this passage, in this text, Paul says if you are led by the Spirit, you're not going to follow the works of the fleshly nature. Now, I think that this phrase, led by the Spirit, has, it's it's been abused in our day and age. To be led by the Spirit doesn't mean that somebody has to be some, you know, mad, insane monk out there, you know, getting visions from God, running around with the sandwich board, or, you know, suddenly falling into a trance. That's not what that means. Led by the Spirit means that you are led. Now think about that. The difference, what is the opposite of being led? The opposite of being led is leading or driving. And too often what we want to do is we want to drive the Spirit, not be led by the Spirit. We need to understand this to be a correction to the attitude of, of, of Simon the sorcerer in Acts 7, who sees the work of the Holy Spirit in the apostles and he says, Hey, That looks like something I can use. How do I get in on that? I'll pay you whatever it takes. Peter makes it real clear. You're playing with forces you don't understand if you think that you can purchase this. In fact, he says, you don't command the Spirit. The Spirit commands you. You aren't leading the Spirit. The Spirit leads you. To be led by the Spirit simply means that we are willing to be led. And and being led is what, we know that that's what makes um, uh, farm animals useful. We know that that's what makes uh, uh, militaries useful. We know that that's what makes a lot of things useful. That's what makes a sports team successful. Is somebody has to follow. Somebody has to be led. We're simply saying that being led by the Spirit is much better than being led by our own elastic, messed up, goofed up emotions or even some of our best thoughts. That God's Spirit is still a better way of leadership than our best. And that leads us into maturity, which will produce the fruit of the Spirit. And he has that interesting phrase. He says, there's no law against these things. He mentions those nine virtues, including joy. There's no law against joy. There really isn't. Some people may, may want to you know, 
drain the joy from you. They may want to drain the joy from the room. Sometimes I see the opposite. These joy Nazis who tell you that you've got to be joyous. Hey, take that frown and turn it upside down. What if you don't have a frown like that? This is my frown. This is my smile. It doesn't arc either way. So what do you do then? See? There's no law against an abundance of this spiritual fruit. Nobody's restricting it. And Paul is is trying to tell these rule-keeping Galatians, you are so nervous and worked up about keeping the instructions when if you would just lean into, yield, and be led by God's way, you'd find freedom. You wouldn't be worried anymore about the, the, the rules. Uh, can we have too much joy? Can we have too much gentleness? Can we have too much patience? No. Go ahead and see what God is willing to do. Finally, he says that living by the Spirit means that we actually turn against the sinful nature. You know, one of the things that, that, that we've learned about baptizing uh, the biblical way is we look at how baptisms happen for adults in Scripture. And, you know, there's no, there's no precise formula, but everybody is baptized in the name of Jesus. That uh, we know that if it's anything like the baptism of Jesus, then the, the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it's all there. We've learned that confession of one's sin and the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord is an important part of that baptism. Because to make that confession and then to be baptized upon that confession means that we are submitting ourselves, we are yielding ourselves to that authority. Now, we've learned a lot of good things. There's one thing that I've noticed that's interesting that has fallen out in the last 200 years that used to be very traditional about baptisms. And and I'm not saying we need to bring it back. I don't think that's necessary, but I I do want to make a point with it. There was a point in many traditional baptismal ceremonies where the convert would renounce the works of the devil, renounce the works of Satan. In fact, archaeologically, we know that some baptistries had a little painting of a devil. And you would get up, and when you renounced the works of the devil, you would spit on it. Now, that's definitely not coming back, not these days. But I do think there needs to be some way, not just at baptism, but some way in which we understand that living by the Spirit means that we are renouncing the works of the devil and of sin. We get too casual sometimes and forget that we are up against hostile forces that want to draw us away from yielding the fruit of the Spirit and want to draw us into the works of the sinful nature. And it will attack us at our pride. It will attack us at our intellect. It will attack us at whatever thing we think is best and good. But living by the Spirit means that we do just like Jesus. And we're willing to submit to a crucifixion. We're willing to, in His words, Take up our cross and follow Him. Taking up our cross means that our sinful, selfish, selfie nature may need to be crucified so that we can live for Him. Paul said it like this. He says, I am crucified with Christ. 
Nevertheless, I live, but it's not me. It's Christ living in me. And in that, he's describing the mystery of spiritual maturity, that as we grow, we become more like him, the one that we fix our eyes on, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would call us to grow in spiritual maturity, that we will be led by your Spirit, that we will follow the way where there is no law of producing, or no law against producing the spiritual fruit that blesses us, that blesses others, and brings glory to your name. Father, empower us to live by your Spirit. And Father, let us lay aside and leave behind, nailed to the cross, all of our sinful desires that hurt us and hurt others and separate us from you. Father, we want to put all of that aside so that we can know the unlimited benefit of spiritual maturity and learn what it means to be joyous in all circumstances. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.